Thank you guys for joining us here on yet another Lundahl Performance Project Horse podcast. A couple different topics we have coming up today. Uh, one Q&A session to start off with concerning bits and our thoughts on them. What's appropriate to use when and just our theories there. Then we talk a little bit about rein position and how that plays into your eventual goal on a western horse of being able to ride them one-handed up in the bridle later on down the road. Then finally we have another Q&A segment where we troubleshoot a two-year-old filly that's having some problems with the side pass and talk a little bit about our thoughts on hindquarter control and why that's so crucial to develop in a young horse. So stay tuned for that. Thank you for joining us. I do want to make one quick announcement here before we dive into the main body of the podcast, and that is to thank our listeners once again for tuning in and make a couple different announcements. We've been on a bit of a hiatus the past couple weeks, getting different things sorted out, getting some new horses in for training, which has been very exciting. And we just filmed a new installment, finally, of the Project Horse video series that hopefully is going to be live up on YouTube, uh, if not within the next couple days, by early next week. You know, where we live in rural Nebraska, not the most conducive to uploading and rendering a lot of video online as far as the Wi-Fi goes, but we do the best we can. We've been working on a couple different solutions for that. And along that note, you might notice a bit of a difference in the quality of the audio right now. And that's because we were finally able to invest in a good microphone and some decent audio and video mixing software. So we were debating, though, whether or not we're going to lose the rustic charm of the old podcast. You know, the engine brakes roaring past on the highway. So until we get our amateur sound studio set up and everything set up perfectly, don't worry. You're still going to hear plenty of that. Uh, But overall, we're making strides. We're making investments. We're making an effort. And even though we have a small audience, we really do appreciate everyone who's listened to the podcast, downloaded it, and shared it. We cannot thank you guys enough for taking the time to listen to us, and we hope you've gotten value from it. And we're committed to keep improving the way we produce our content and making it better as the year goes on. Along that note, stay tuned to Facebook. Uh, Keep track of our page. We're going to be putting out some new announcements here shortly about different events we're going to be doing the rest of the year. We've got some really cool stuff planned for right here in northeast Nebraska that should be very fun and very affordable relative to the other things that we do. But overall, thank you guys again for all your support on our YouTube channel, SoundCloud, Anchor, our Apple Podcasts, everywhere that we put out our content, interacting with everybody and creating stuff in these past few months since we launched. It's been an absolute blast, and those of you who support us, you make it all worthwhile. We cannot thank you enough. Okay, so our first Q&A question here posted on one of the Facebook groups that we follow with somewhat of a sardonic tone, I would say, although this this critique is very typical. These types of questions come up all the time. Clinics, lessons, online, you name it. You'll see these various criticisms. We wanted to use this as an opportunity to lay out a little bit about our philosophy on bits, what types and, and why we use them and when. The question is, just wondering, why would you use a sharper bit when a horse is doing stops and rollbacks and everything you want in a snaffle? I just don't bleep and get it. 
And I would say first off that a snaffle bit in our program and the way we see it is an extremely important step in a horse's progression. Doing a lot of lateral flexion, getting that horse soft, establishing a really good foundation of control and softness, you can get all that done in a snaffle bit. But we see it as more of a, it's a necessary step in their progression, but you eventually want to move beyond that. I think, you know, we talk a lot about the point of a snaffle bit, especially where lateral flexion is concerned. Right. Like, like you mentioned, it's a means to an end. Now, um, the whole point of the snaffle bit, obviously, is to ride the horse two-handed, take it left and right, but that can then become a hindrance in a way if you're trying to then go show a horse. Like we were talking about before we got on the air, um, the whole point of Western riding at the most top levels is like finesse, precision, doing less and getting more from it. A, a rider being able to just sit there and just barely guide that horse around one-handed. And when you have, when you transition from two-handed to one-handed, you immediately figure out how many different areas you've been helping that horse out subconsciously without you even knowing it. And now one-handed, you're kind of hung out to dry like that. And yes, curb bits get a bit of a bad rap um, because a lot of people, if they have a problem with their horse, rather than addressing the real issue, fixing like the mental resistance, they just say, oh, put a bigger bit in its mouth. And that's, you know, not really a wise horseman's approach to the problem, but they absolutely have a place in the industry if you're looking to show and you're looking for a higher level of performance out of your horse. Yes. Well, <clears throat> we see different criticism a lot, especially from like the, you know, more of the clinician side of the industry, the people there, they look at people who ride one-handed and whatnot with, uh, you know, they sort of have a distaste for it, but they forget that's, that's the point of Western horsemanship is you do less while the horse does more. And there's a level of control, collection, finesse that you can't get in a snaffle. And there's a level of precision that you can't develop in a snaffle. You have to start riding one-handed to get to that final step, to get to that higher level. But I just want to back up briefly and talk about a little bit about our personal progression in our program. What type of snaffle bits do we use? Well, if it's a green horse that we're starting out with, we maybe will do a few rides in a hackamore. The nose pressure that it exerts on them translates very well from the groundwork and prep you've done on the ground with the halter. From there, you know, go to a smooth snaffle, something you can get basic softness, basic lateral flexion, basic control established with a mouthpiece that's pretty, pretty, you know, generic. It's, it's not really threatening to the horse. It's very smooth. But then from there, as needed, key word, you might step up to a twist or a square bit, or a thin twist, or maybe a square twist, if need be. Higher level, again, of sharpness, you might say, or it just gives you a little bit more leverage. Um, and then if needed, you know, probably the highest intensity level of mouthpiece we'll use is like what some people call a corkscrew, or what we call a screw bit. But I, it should be stressed that, in, you know, you don't step up to that level if need be and then stay there forever and use it as a crutch. You use it in order to break through whatever resistance you're facing, get the point across, get the job done, and then go back down to a lower level of mouthpiece. Right. That's something that a lot of misconception there is, oh, you ride it in say, a corkscrew or a square twist all the time. Mm -hmm. And like a bit like a corkscrew is a really special you know, for special, it has a, 
its place is in more of a specialized type of a problem. We will see it a lot with horses we get in for training that, you know, have had bad habits trained into them where they are dangerous, running off, that sort of thing. And you need something, a big enough gun to do the job to fix this problem because your life is on the line in that point. Like you're in a dangerous situation. But it is noted that, yes, when you go, if you run into a spot of resistance and you have to go to like a square twist, you only stay there for three, four days. You fix whatever that, that resistance was using the tool necessary to get the job done. And then once that's accomplished, then you go back to, you know, your regular twist or maybe a thin twist to continue your training. Yeah, and it, it's it's all up to your feel, though, as a rider as well. Any bit can become aggressive if you have heavy hands, you have no feel and timing, and you're just ripping that horse around. Obviously, your feel as a rider is a big is a big part of that but we've never had a horse that at one time or another didn't throw up resistance to where you need a little bit more leverage on your side you need to step up and use the equipment that's necessary to get the job done in that instance right and then moving on to like the curb bits the biggest thing the biggest really problem you run into and the one of the reasons i like you know the curb bits when you go one-handed is because it exposes all the holes you have as a horseman not getting the job done and kind of covering up areas where your horse is not really truly getting off the rain and whatnot and now when you go one-handed you're a bit hung out to dry and so it exposes those weaknesses you have as a trainer and one thing i wanted to make a point about the curb bits a lot of people say oh those different ports they make some that are so high there's like a cathedral port they have ones where it's a medium port with like two what looks like ball bearings on the top of it, you know, or one or whatever. There's all these different, you know, types of, of curbs out there. And really what that is, is it just applies pressure at a different part of that horse's mouth, whether it's the sides of their mouth or their tongue or the roof of their mouth or their palate. They all have these different areas where if you apply a pressure there, it's going to get you a different response. And it's horses... You know, they're individuals. Some of them respond to a different level of pressure better than the other one. But if you notice that if it's a well-made bit, and again, those run up there in price a little bit more, but if it's a well-made bit, when it's just sitting in that horse's mouth, if you look at the way it hangs off that bridle, the you know, it doesn't matter how high that port is, it's not rubbing on the horse's mouth whatsoever. It's designed to sit in there comfortably. And again, like any tool, it can always be abused it depends on the rider. You have to have the wherewithal and the professionalism to use the tool for its job, not abuse it. Yes, but overall, I just want to reiterate that if you're the kind of person who you've gotten a, a certain level of performance out of your horse using whether it's a smooth snaffle or I know some people that swear off bits entirely or they never ride with spurs and they're totally happy with how their horse is riding, that's fine. But don't criticize other people who are using the equipment that they that is proper, in fact, to get a higher level of finesse and performance because you cannot believe the amount of control and precision you can get out of a horse that's well prepared that you then put in the bridle, go one-handed. There's another level of performance that you cannot achieve in a halter, in a hackamore, in a smooth snaffle bit. That's just how it is. So again, though, if you're happy with where your horse is at, stick with what you're doing. But if you want that higher level of performance, you got to use the equipment that's necessary.
Let's talk a little bit about rein position when riding in a snaffle bit, because this is an issue that came up again at the clinic as well, and it's something that the customers were working with who they want to progress out of the snaffle, they want to get somewhere, they're kind of caught between two different schools of thought. And so we wanted to kind of break down the benefits, the upsides, the downsides of each one. One style of riding two-handed that we see and that we've been exposed to a lot ourselves is to more or less keep your hands low and wide with everything that you're doing. When you take a hold of the horse's mouth, you're kind of keeping your hands more anchored down around your knees. You're just taking a hold of the horse at a much lower and wider angle with the reins versus pulling up to your hip, kind of having your hands more narrow, more in close to your body. There's definitely upsides to each one of those styles. Right, and I think the upside to going low and wide and anchoring your hands down there by your knees, it comes in, number one, I think it is great for the rider to develop their feel. For Under- beginner riders, Right, yes. exactly, because when you first start you know, softening a horse vertically, And the horse gives, I know I had a tendency to do this, and I'm sure you probably did. I think everyone probably runs into this at some point. When the horse gives and they create slack in your reins, if you're not anchored to something, you almost move your hands with the horse. And so every time they try and soften, you pull a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And the horse is pretty soon like, I can't get off anymore. Like they're trapped in their chest. Mm -hmm. And so anchoring your hands to your knees teaches you that feel. It it prohibits it prevents you, I almost didn't get that out of my mouth, it prevents you from moving your hands and it forces you to understand that feel. It forces you to be more disciplined about how you pick up versus how you release, in other words. Right, right, exactly. And then I think secondly is leverage, especially teaching a young horse. I think it is super valuable to use this approach down wide and low with your hands when you're teaching a young horse because it's a little bit easier for him to follow it when you're down low more down to his level and you've got a little bit more leverage on him so when he doesn't know what to do and he's looking for the answer and he's kind of pulling and whatnot it's a little bit easier for you to kind of take a keep a hold of the rein and not let him kind of pull your hands around a little bit Mm -hmm. easier for him to follow his nose follow a feel and also you know you you don't have much vertical leverage in a snaffle you need to have your hands a little wider and lower exactly exactly and then i think thirdly um, and this plays into the same, you know, pro or upside to pulling your hip is the angle of your pull. You know, the game of horsemanship is about putting your horse into a bind mentally and physically and then letting him find his way out of it. So you want to expose that horse to different angles of pull. And so this is just just like pulling up to your hips. It is a new angle that you're exposing him to. So moving on into the upsides of pulling your hip that we already named one of them. It's a new angle. You know, you look at the angle going to your knee versus up to your hip. There's quite a drastic change there. And then number two is an improvement of your feel from a rider aspect because this forces you, now your hands are kind of hanging in the air, you know, to use... I don't know a manner of speaking. They're not. They're kind of floating there, and so it forces you to really improve your own feel and your own timing. And now you have nothing to help you. Yeah, your dexterity with how you use your arms and your fingers. Exactly, yes. and you have nothing to prevent you from pulling more when he gives. So it's going to take your own horsemanship to another level. If you just stay anchored to your knees all the time, then you never improve your feel as a rider, and that plays directly into how far you're ever going to get with your own horse. And then um, the last part and the most valuable for pulling up to your hips 
is on a horse that you want to transition one-handed. Look at the difference, and we may need to do a video on this to illustrate it maybe better, but look at the angle that is you pull when you anchor your hands to your knees versus the angle that you would pull when you have a horse one-handed and you're pulling it back to your chest to soften it up. That's a huge difference in the way you're pulling. And so you need to be able to wean the horse on that. Remember, horsemanship is all about setting your horse up for success as best as you can. So if you go from only picking up and anchoring to your knees to now all of a sudden picking up and pulling with one hand, like you've set this horse up to fail. It's a totally new experience to him and he's going to be completely lost. So pulling up to your hip is a great little midway transition to use to introduce a horse for one-handed riding. It's an important intermediate step from the foundation work, all the lateral softening you're going to be doing when your hands are wider and lower, to keeping your hands more in close, teaching him that different rein angle, and introducing some direct rein into a lot of the things that you do, which then sets him up well to be ridden one-handed. Right, and I think, you know, as far as negatives of, I, of either one, um, I think you you can't, I like to do, honestly, me personally, a little bit of both. When I'm starting a colt, I like to do everything wide and low and just kind of make it easier for him. But if I just stayed there up until I rode one-handed, he'd be totally lost when I eventually go one-handed. And so I'd have to almost step back a couple weeks to try and refix all that. And it would delay the process. Whereas if I, you know, transition about, you know, two months into the program, into pulling towards my hips, it exposes him again, that new pull and better sets him up for going one-handed, you know, a year down the road. All right, let's go into our Q&A here. We've got a question off of Facebook, uh, which says, I have a two-year-old filly who I'm now starting to work on more body control exercises, specifically the side pass but this filly doesn't like the leg pressure. When I use my spur, she either tries to run backwards, rear up, or half-heartedly buck. Do you have any suggestions, or should I continue with the same pressure and release technique that I've been using? And I will just say up front, Luke, before I let you kind of break the ice on this one, that this goes back to what we're harping on so much that we're like broken records when we talk about our view on how important it is to get a lot of hindquarter control on a young horse, especially a young two-year-old. That's, that's exactly, you know, what this kind of problem goes back to. <clears throat> and it really doesn't have anything to do so much with the side pass as just the overall mental aspect of under, the horse understanding leg pressure means move off my legs. And the easiest way to begin that is with the hindquarters, because like we'd mentioned in previous podcasts, that's the that's the engine of this, you know, quote-unquote car that we have here. All the power, everything the horse does is generated from that. So to tackle a problem like this, I would completely forget about the side pass, and I would address individual parts of the side pass in preparation for it. But they're all revolved around the theme of going back and teaching this horse, okay, when I apply leg pressure, you need to move off that. All the negative behavior, the half-heartedly threatening to buck, the rearing up, running backwards, those are all just escape tactics of a horse that doesn't know how to yield off your legs. And so I would say step one is address your hindquarters, not only because it is A, number one, the first thing that we do to introduce a horse to body control off your legs, but look at the nature of a side pass. What, 
every time we go to clinic, every horse we've ever seen has this problem. And I'd say 99.9% of all horses out there usually do the same thing where they always lag the hindquarters in that side pass. Mm -hmm. So let's address that as well by doing a kind of a yield to introduce this. So to tackle this, I would really just walk the horse off around the arena, then just slide my hand down the one rein, pulling his head around to my toe. And as I pull that rein up to my hip, I'm going to press my inside leg. So if I'm pulling with that right rein, it's going to be my right leg. Press that back by his flank, and I'm going to ask him to disengage that hindquarters. And for a horse like this, it's not exactly happy about moving off my leg. I don't want to connect this right now because obviously this horse needs to learn this exercise. So I don't want its first experience with my leg to be negative. So I'd use the tail of your rein to spank this thing on the hindquarters to get it to move. And I would just look for a step or two. I wouldn't care how stiff it is in the face or if it throws its head up, any of that. You've got this horse's head bent, and the key there is you've got the leverage now. A horse that runs backwards uh, or rears up, you can, or half-heartedly bucks, you stop all of that, you shut it all down by keeping the head bent because you, know, you have the leverage, you have the control. A horse that tries to run backwards, you bend its head, what are they going to do? They're going to they're gonna spiral around and into a circle. A horse that tries to rear up, they can't rear up if you've got their head bent and their hind end is crossing over. Now, later on, I would say, yes, I want to associate, okay, when I press my leg, I need to move you off my leg, and so I might start to bump with my spur if they're not moving. But for this particular horse, no, I want to associate light leg pressure. If they don't get off that, then spank with the rein. I don't want to start aggressively kicking on this mare and make her even more pissed off when she already doesn't know what to do. Yeah, well, we see that a lot in different programs we've been exposed to where they make a point to kind of neglect a lot of hindquarter control. They don't get the horse used to being able to handle that type of pressure and how to respond. Obviously, she's getting really offended about him putting his leg back there. So you don't want to then, if she's getting sticky with her feet, just start kicking on her at this stage. Exactly. And you, you made a point earlier, you mentioned, and I want to reiterate this, that you would do this disengage the hindquarters exercise to start with, but be doing it at the walk, not bind her up at the standstill and then try to kick those hips over right. and get her right. moved over. Just keep things a little bit free. Obviously, she's you know, probably anticipating a fight here. So just back up a step and make it a little bit easier because chances are she's she's had that type of program where you you kind of neglect a lot of hindquarter control until you want to do things like this. Until you need it. Exactly. And then it's a big fight because they don't mentally know how to respond to that pressure. Right. And I think that's an important point about keeping the horse walking because a horse like this, when you let them walk, especially if you're working on a particular exercise, Letting them have little intermittent breaks where you let them walk, it like hits a mental reset button and it freshes them, it keeps them refreshed mentally. If you just pound it into them at the standstill, they're like, oh, this is, I don't like any of this. I don't want any part of that. And so they get, you know, resentful about it. But the benefit to doing it that way is that whether the horse is resentful and sour about your leg or they're scared and fractious, mm -hmm. doing that will actually fix either problem. So regardless of which, you know, clearly she's getting offended about your leg. But if you had a horse that was scared, and we've had those in the past, we've done the same exact thing. Just staying at the walk, keeping things relaxed, let them have a little bit of a break. It helps both a horse that's mad and angry versus one that's fractious and scared of your leg. It, it, you, you're killing two birds with one stone, so we would make the point that either whatever problem you're having, this will help with both situations. Exactly, exactly. And then going back to 
after you get that step or two, and again, start with a small, find a small starting point, something this horse can mentally handle. After you get that step or two, then I would take your leg off, keep that head bent until the horse stops and softens, and then turn the horse loose and walk them off again. And I would literally ignore how they feel in the face. They're going to be stiff, especially if you spank them on the rein. They're going to throw their head up and they're going to be real stiff in the face. But with repetition, the horse realizes that you don't release the rein until it yields and then stops and then softens. And it'll begin to anticipate that throughout the yield. And then on its own, it will begin to be remain soft during the yield. And from there, then, I think the next valuable thing you could do is work on the two-track. Next. Right, right. And I think before we get into that, just one more thing. Obviously, then you just slowly build. So if you're doing it at the walk, then you could go from a trot to a yield transition and then a lope to a yield and then get that, just build on that part of it. It doesn't look like a side pass, but it'll pay off dividends later on. So moving in then to the two track, that's like, it's like a, a poor man's side pass. Maybe that's what you might call it. Because you're technically side passing, but you're moving forward across the arena at a 45. You're moving that rib cage off your leg. But again, you're keeping the head bent. If I'm two tracking to the left, the head is bent to the right. And I'm using my right leg on that rib cage. And again, you have that head bent so that you have the leverage again in this situation. You have the control, you have the leverage, and you're letting the horse go forward and sideways. So it's a little bit easier for them. It's not quite so restrictive putting them into so much of a bind. Right. But you do have to have their head bent because, again, they'll they'll want to run for it and they'll want to run that shoulder out of what you're doing as well. So you're keeping that in check. And you really are focused on on more on the hindquarters as well when you're doing this. But you want to maintain that forward motion. Right, right. And keeping that head bent, that's an important point that I wanted to make as well, is that when you by pulling that head around, you almost kind of shut that front end down a little bit. And so it helps you cheat and helps stop the shoulder from running off and helps you get that hip moved into place a little bit more. Yes, that's something we've seen, though, is a lot of people, they worry so much with green horses about getting them to two-track, or or they just skip all that, skip the disengage, skip the two-track, and they go right to trying to teach them to side-pass with their head, neck, and body straight. And I think you avoid a lot of issues if you at least introduce these things with the head bent. It just helps you keep things under control. It makes it easier for the horse to understand. Um, it just puts you in a little bit better position there. Exactly. And, you know, just like with the yield, you just find a starting point, whether that's one or two steps with their body being straight from their shoulders to their hindquarters and then turn loose and release. And you start this obviously at the walk and you could build it to the trot, but let the horse's response dictate your release. If the horse isn't straight and I have to put my inside leg a little farther back towards its flank and the, and the horse gets its hip caught up and I'm able to take that into a couple steps of a two track, that's my starting point. But if I can't get that hip caught up and I've got my leg back there by the horse's flank and it's really struggling, 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 it won't get that hip caught up, then finally when it swings its hip over, I'm just going to release there. Forget the two track. That's your starting point. Yep. That's your starting point. And then as you build on from that, you're going to be more and more aware of, is the horse truly accepting this pressure and taking those steps and actually two tracking versus running away from my leg or just trying to escape your leg? You become more and more aware of that. Again, with both the ones that are mad at you versus the ones that are fractious, you want them to to step over and, and move off your leg, but be relaxed and controlled about doing it. Right. And I think, you know, a big hiccup people run into is this doesn't look like a side pass. 
the yielding, the hindquarters, or this two tracking. No, technically it doesn't immediately reflect one, but it's the broken down simplistic parts of it. And it's your job to try and prepare the horse as best as possible for that particular maneuver or exercise. So you're breaking it down in a way that's going to be a little bit easier for him to understand. You're getting, you're isolating the particular body parts, but you have that head bent, so you have the leverage. And when the horse is struggling, they can't, you know, because especially rearing up, that's a habit that a horse learns as a means to try and evade the pressure. And once you've planted that seed, it always kind of hangs around. But if you start out by keeping that horse's head bent, they never even attempt to try and rear up as any possible means of releasing the pressure. And so you never have to worry about that cropping up later in life. Well, getting that head bent and also starting your foundation with disengaging the hindquarters and establishing your control there. That's just what we see a lot of the leaping, the rearing up. That's just the horse not knowing where to go and just trying to escape your legs. They don't know how to yield off that pressure. So ultimately go back, do a little bit of foundation. Once you get the horse disengaging its hindquarters, calmly controlled, relaxed, it's moving off your legs. Same thing with the two track. You'll find that the side pass is basically done for you, and then you can refine it to whatever degree you feel comfortable with, but you've you've tackled the big kahuna, the main problem, which is that hindquarter control. Thank you guys for joining us on yet another episode of the Lundahl Performance Project Horse Podcast. We hope you got value from it. You have suggestions for us on show topics you want us to cover or things we could be doing better. Hit us up on Facebook, facebook.com slash Lundahl Horses. See you next time.